Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats. It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now, save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a rebooted podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And I don't know about you, but now that we're through that pilot episode, I feel like I can finally relax. I really love this energy for us. You can tell we're relaxing because it's scripted. So let's just <laughs> unwind, undo our metaphorical tight pants, and coast on over to the sorting chat. Now, this is really great because we don't have anything scripted for the sorting chat. So I feel awesome about my ability to come up with something that isn't related to my body to talk about. You want to talk about your body? (laughs) No, I don't want to tell anybody about the body horror that I've been experiencing for the last four days. (laughs) That's 100% your right. Your body is allowed to be your secret precious pearl. My body, my choice. So, yep, absolutely. That applies in all circumstances, except for wearing a mask. My God, (laughs) people wear masks. There are actually several contexts in which choices about bodies must be tempered by the complexities of the The government. Good. (laughs) I think we can all agree that government mandated. Nope. Uh, Mm -mm. The best part about this is that the strong inclination to make our conversations topical must be mitigated by the fact that we're recording two months in advance. At least. So I know that the whole thing about the sorting chat segment is that we can't really talk about like topical things because we are recording this episode mm, a, a few months, a month. I don't know how time works. Before it's, I mean, at least at least a at month. least a month before it's going to air. But I do really want to talk to you briefly about this uh, incredible sort of galaxy brain energy op-ed that just came out. Okay, about about libraries and how libraries are the true Ooh. enemy of publishers. Oh no, 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 oh, oh, oh my goodness! <laughs> it's so funny. So. The guy who wrote it, Ken White, is, um, I believe, the former editor of the National Post, I think. Okay. Um, he was the person behind the appropriation prize. If you remember oh. when that like editor got fired for saying that cultural appropriation was great, and then a bunch of other editors were like, mm. cultural appropriation is great. Let's start a prize for the person who appropriates culture the best. This guy, Ken White, mm-hmm. was the person who was like, started the idea of the prize. Who was like, cool, you cool. Get, let's raise cool. money for this prize. That's my impression of Ken White. I've never heard him talk. Um, <laughs> and then I guess sort of in keeping with his general sense of disdain for like the literary world in Canada, he bought an independent literary press um, with the assumption that by buying it, he would just like 
get its annual Canada Council grant, which like Canada Council was like, absolutely not. That's not how it works. And since then, he has just been producing the stream of irate op-eds about how the world is organized against independent publishers, which is so funny because he had nothing but disdain for them until he became one. And he's still pretty sure they're all doing it wrong. But this op-ed is like, do you realize that people go into libraries and they get books for free? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) Did you know? Oh, my God. Books that they should be paying money for. Wow. Wow. Wait until he hears about elementary education. (laughs) There are just millions of children learning for free. I bet those children don't even pay for those books. I bet those children don't even have jobs. (laughs) Wow. It was absolutely incredible uh, and entirely ignored the like plenty of research that has been done showing that public libraries increase literacy and the likelihood that people will be readers as opposed Mm -hmm. to people who don't read books for pleasure and spend all of their time like watching tv and looking at the internet and if libraries make more people into readers then more people are gonna buy books like it's good to have more readers because that's who buys books yeah Yeah. i mean also like maybe we could just give the poor like a half an hour break (laughs) from being trodden on by old white dudes you know like like just like a five minute break you know oh you can't afford to buy books well too bad no books for you no books for you (laughs) we didn't plan that that wasn't scripted (laughs) all right speaking of scripted you want to uh you want to move this on i do yes I don't know about you, but I have trouble remembering anything that happened more than five minutes ago. So I guess it's time for, what's this segment called again? Oh yeah, revisions. Revisions. It's time for revisions. What a good joke. That was really funny. All right, what do we do in revisions? Well, this is where we pull in threads from previous episodes. Um, it is also where we might do a little plot summary that's relevant to this episode. Great. So, yeah. So last time we talked about chosen one narratives and uh, the treatment of different characters or the challenges as metaphor for Harry's navigation of the world. Yeah. So we were like Hagrid, keeper of the keys. He's like this portal mm-hmm. guy. That's the only mm-hmm. one I remember. Five minute memory. That's all I've got. Harry's letters and Uncle Vernon's refusal to give Harry his letters, a kind of refusal of the call. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm remembering these now. We sort of talked through the various things in the book that you could treat as pieces of a hero's journey. And then we sort of stepped back and talked about the whole chosen one narrative hero's journey idea in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also talked about theory as a thing that uh, you can and, and really should situate historically to understand where it comes from and what motivates it, whose idea it was in the first place, and uh, how relevant it is today. Yeah. Yeah. And then we sort of 
thought a little bit about how, you know, recognizing the way that a story is being told and maybe how it was built structurally. We can also, as fans, sort of take the power into our hands to read it resistantly or think about it differently, which is going to be really key as we talk through these different theoretical ways of approaching these books. That there's always that question of like, well, what is the book doing you know what can we find in the text and then what are we empowered to do as readers Mm -hmm. which is like yes not always the same thing right definitely yeah so this week we're going to drill a little bit more into a particular component of the world that's being built for us in this first book and so we're still thinking about the first book in the series and we're still thinking about this kind of first introduction to the wizarding world that we get And what we're really going to focus on in this episode is uh, Professor Quirrell and the goblins and Mm -hmm. the representation of um, certain forms of otherness in the wizarding Mm -hmm. world and sort of what what these particular characters tell us about aspects of the makeup of the wizarding world. And I I really think a thing that we need to, to think about and talk about i was gonna say think about or talk about but guess what we can do <laughs> both let's do both yeah that's ideal is the idea of a trope which is one of those <gasps> words that i use so much that when i wrote it down i was like yeah, yeah yeah we're gonna talk about tropes what is the definition of a trope I actually remember, Hannah, when I was doing my master's and you were doing your PhD and it was a gazillion years ago. And I remember we were talking with a real live tenured professor uh, about how none of us knew what the word trope meant. (laughs) And I distinctly remember you saying, I use it instead of using the word thing. (laughs) And I really, I really, really love that. Oh my God, young Hannah, so sassy. Very sassy. So confident you're not knowing anything. Incredible. What an incredible energy. Just, you know, carry that with you everywhere you go. Oh, I really, I can, I will, I do. So a trope, let's say it's like a thing. (laughs) I use trope to mean a kind of figurative language or a sort of caricature if it's a person. Yeah, so a trope functions like literary shorthand. So a trope is a way that an author or a text signals something to us as readers or, you know, in TV and film as viewers quickly. It's a way to, mm-hmm. to cue readers or viewers about something important about a character or a situation. And so tropes are sometimes stereotypes you know, your evil stepmother, your Prince Charming, your hilarious sidekick. Um, Tropes can also be familiar narrative cues. So foreshadowing, right? The, Mm. if you see a gun in the first act, that gun will go off in the third act. That's kind of a narrative trope. So it's like a broad category of literary and figurative shorthands. Yeah, it tells the audience what you can expect. Yeah, exactly. And because... They're shorthands that are meant to communicate something quickly and efficiently. They often reveal something (laughs) about what the author is assuming about the readers or what the author is assuming the readers will be able to pick up quickly. So tropes operate within cultural context. So if I'm reading a book that's written 
in a really different historical period or out of a really different cultural context, I'll probably have to research the tropes. I'm probably not going to pick them up. But if I'm reading something like Harry Potter, it's like, okay, this is a book written by a white Westerner. I am a white Westerner. We were raised in very similar literary traditions. And so I am generally, as a reader, going to be picking up what she is putting down. Yep. You know, in the first run of this podcast, we've talked around a lot of the a lot of the tropes, though not necessarily sort of explicitly as tropes. The ones that we I come back to all the time is that the Dursleys are fat and that's a sign that they're bad people. That's mm-hmm. a very, very common trope. It's a sign of how fat phobia operates. The same way that like villains are disproportionately likely to be physically othered in some way, say mm-hmm. to be black or the, I read an article a while ago about the high rate of albinos being villains. Like interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The only example that I can remember is the matrix, but the way that physical otherness comes to stand in for something so that you can cue to your audience, like, Oh, look at this person. Who's not like the rest of the people that must mean there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. One of the things, and this is a thing people say about Harry Potter all the time, but it's particularly obvious in this first book when we're first encountering the wizarding world, is that it is wildly tropey. It is (laughs) of the tropiest. Do you remember those super early BuzzFeed quizzes that, or maybe it wasn't even BuzzFeed. Maybe BuzzFeed didn't exist yet. Who even knows? But it was before Harry Potter got sophisticated and you could do quizzes online to see which house you're in. And the questions were like, do you believe in saving people or do you believe in killing everyone for power? I absolutely remember those. (laughs) Like, what's your favorite thing? Being a hero or eating your enemies with a giant snake? Tropey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extremely tropey. Okay, so we're not going to talk about every trope in this book in this episode because that would be impossible because this book is tropes tip to tail. <laughs> but which ones are we going to talk about? Well, let's go back to one of our favorites from our initial run. Let's talk about the goblins. Woo, goblins are tropey. We made an argument in the initial run of our podcast that uh, goblins were the Jews of the wizarding world, and that's because the way in which they are described in the Harry Potter books relies really heavily on very long-standing anti-Semitic tropes. So um, here's an example. This is straight out of the book. This is about the goblin Griphook. He was about a head shorter than Harry. He had a swarthy, clever face a pointed beard, and Harry noticed very long fingers and feet. Yeah, so if you take this description and map it against anti-Semitic caricatures of Jewish people, it's pretty much a one-to-one equivalence. And add into that the fact that the goblins are in charge of the banks. The money. (laughs) The banks. What are they also in charge of? The wizarding media? (laughs) Yeah, and you've got some pretty classic anti-Semitic tropes at work Mm -hmm. here. What's important to note about how this is functioning as an anti-Semitic trope is that the point isn't that the book is trying to say that goblins are Jewish. No, The point is that the book is using the tropes of Jewishness as a shorthand to say some things about the goblins. 
Right. Right. It's trying to communicate information to us about what goblins are like by using Mm -hmm. descriptors that are designed to cue certain kinds of assumptions for readers. Right. And so for a reader who is, let's say, not Jewish, they might read this and think, yeah, it's a goblin. They just like money and they're, you know, small and they keep to themselves and they don't interact with the rest of wizarding world society. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just about goblins. It's fine. And would still absorb the information intended mm-hmm. to be communicated, right? That like goblins aren't quite like everybody else. Maybe we don't really trust them because they've got clever mm. faces and long fingers. And that suggests mm-hmm. that maybe they're sneaky and they're not really sort of part of the rest of society. And so I'm going to absorb that information about goblins again, without sort of understanding how it's been communicated to me. Yeah. Yeah. But of course a reader a little bit more literate in anti-Semitic tropes is gonna see what's happening there mm-hmm. yeah 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 it's noticeable immediately yeah. if you know the history of anti-Semitic caricatures of Jewish people similarly you've got another set of I would say also anti-Semitic caricatures at work in our initial encounter with Snape who is described mm-hmm. as having again direct from the book greasy black hair a hooked nose and sallow skin mm-hmm. and the sort of particularly the nose is a pretty dead giveaway again of what we are encountering here is a sort of shorthand of a character who is villainous or not to be trusted being communicated to us via certain sort of racialized or anti-semitic tropes Mm -hmm. but we've got a really obvious sort of standout example of the way that (laughs) visual tropes are used to communicate villainy in this particular book don't we we sure do so we've got our antagonist professor quarrel who those of you who have read the book may remember uh is in a quote absurd turban end quote that emits a strange smell and it hides a terrible secret yeah and we've got later on in addition to the sort of weird smelling turban an direct association of that turban with Africa, just the whole fucking continent. Um, So Mm -hmm. at one point in a potions class, Harry notes that Quirrell tells him that his turban, quote, had been given to him by an African prince as a thank you for getting rid of a troublesome zombie. And again, sort of repeats that there's a funny smell hanging around the turban. So Mm -hmm. we've got Quirrell is associated with the sort of general otherness signaled here by the entire continent of Africa um, (laughs) and by this kind of like weird idea of an African prince, which again, the turban, the reference to Africa, the strange smell are all shorthand that is signaling to us that Quirrell is strange, Quirrell is other, Quirrell is not to be trusted, which all function as narrative foreshadowing of... Mm -hmm. The revelation that Quirrell, in fact, has Voldemort stuck to the back of his head. (laughs) Yeah, wrapped up in that turban. It's wrapped right up in that turban. Kind of smelling bad. Like, is is he rotting? It's really hard to say. Maybe he's got terrible breath. Maybe Quirrell's not brushing his teeth back there. It's gross. Yeah. It's what it is. It's very bad. Um, 
And this is amplified even more by the narrative behind Quirrell's encounter with Voldemort, which is that, you know, sort of Quirrell went off into the darkest woods of Albania. Yeah. Where even is Albania? It's in Europe, but I did a little bit of drilling down into Albania, and it is in sort of portions of Europe that sort of were at some point... Uh, Muslim and so are still associated oh. with a sort of Orientalist imagining within Western European literature. Wow. I know where it turns <laughs> out when you research things, you find stuff out. It's pretty wild. Uh, <laughs> so we've got lots and lots of signaling in similar vocabularies to how the goblins are signaled as suspicious, how Snape is signaled as a villain. We've got lots mm-hmm. of like foreshadowing that Quirrell is not to be trusted so that when the reveal mm-hmm. happens it's like oh yeah oh we should have known he had a secret because he's wearing that turban mm-hmm. and really what we need to do is wrap our heads around this particular set of tropes and where they come from because tropes mm-hmm. never come from nowhere and what? always come from somewhere <laughs> oh yes okay cool <laughs> Let's find out more about where those tropes come from, Hannah. What do you say? I can't wait. Sure, you could turn a key into a bird, but the real magic lies in turning books into ideas about books, right? Whoa. It's time for transfiguration class. Okay, Hannah, I've got a question for you. I'm ready. So theories, Mm -hmm. are they real? Oh, what a great question. And we talked in the last episode about the chosen one narrative and the hero's journey. And as a narrative structure, we pointed out all of these ways that it gets used in literary theory or gets used by authors. But the thing with the hero's journey is that as an understanding of the world, it was invented by some theorists Mm -hmm. right like they they just observed some trends and invented this idea and then that idea sort of then created more literature that followed those trends so recognizing that the hero's journey was at work in harry potter we were pointing out the way the narrative was using that structure in order to say something about harry and the way he's navigating the world What we weren't saying is that the hero's journey is a true real thing that exists out there in the world, just that Mm -hmm. it arises in literature and that using this theory sort of helped us to see something about how this text was working to represent reality. Yeah. What we're saying when we talk about theories is that theory allows us to see how a text represents reality. It represents our reality as readers, as a world on the edge of a magical universe in the case of Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. But this universe is still one whose systems of power are white supremacist and patriarchal. Mm -hmm. Because this text was still sort of created in our world. And so it still interacts with key aspects of our world. Exactly. So what we're trying to grapple with when we talk about theories is how texts have made decisions about how to represent the world, right? There's a set of choices that have been made in how you create any kind of fictional universe. 
And theories help us unpack how those choices were made, help us unpack the kind of invented reality within a text and see how it connects to our real world. So critical race theory, for example, shows us how patterns of white supremacy, anti-blackness, imperialism, and other oppressive forces operate in a text. We know those operate in our lived experience of the world as well, and they operate in texts, and those things are related to each other, but not always identical. And that's that's what we're sort of always working to unpack when we work with literary theories. So for me, as a white reader, for example, the revelations that critical race theory shows me in text will often help me to see some of those same patterns in the real world. So a text can be sort of a test case for us to understand how power mm -hmm. and language and representation interact. So some theories help us understand the world better, and some theories mm -hmm. mostly just help us understand texts better. And I think you and yeah. I, Marcel, tend to be more interested in the theories that help us understand the world better. Yeah, I really like that as a way to sort of distinguish the different types of theories, you know, and obviously some are going to do both. But but it is true. Yeah. Like certain theories allow you to read a text in new ways and get new things out of it. And the ones that we find really interesting, they reveal patterns to us in the real world that we may not necessarily have noticed because of our positions in the world as, you know, white cis women from middle class backgrounds who grew up in Canada. Yeah. Which is a really, really narrow and specific view of the world. And we talk a lot about how reading can expand our understanding of the world. And I think theoretically driven reading can do that even more so. Definitely. So on that note, the theory that we want to unpack in this episode is Orientalism. And we really think Orientalism is one of those theories that's going to help us not only understand some of the key stuff that's going on in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, but also the way those tropes that we've discussed interact with some power dynamics in the real world so marcel yeah would you like to give us like a orientalism 101 oh yes i love orientalism as a theory because it helps me to understand so many things about representation that I was not able to understand or kind of just took for granted before. So this term, Orientalism, comes from Edward Said's book published in 1978 of the same title, Orientalism. And unlike the theorists we talked about last episode, two white men who were not especially self-conscious of their positions of power in the world. Um, Saeed was a Palestinian academic who was profoundly aware of the ways that race and imperialism shaped the world that he moved in. Mm -hmm. So in his book, Saeed describes Orientalism as follows, quote, taking the late 18th century as a very roughly defined starting point, Orientalism can be discussed and analyzed as the corporate institution for dealing with the Orient. Dealing with it, that is, by making statements about it, authorizing views of it, describing it, by teaching it, settling it, ruling over it. 
In short, Orientalism as a Western style for dominating, restructuring, and having authority over the Orient. End quote. So what's super key about that definition, which is, you know, one sentence pulled out of a long and complex book, but one sentence that does a great job of summarizing this whole theory, is that Said is explicitly drawing together politics and art as a way of thinking about how representation and literal uh, political and military power work together to invent and, in his words, deal with this thing called the Orient. So in his, in his interest in drawing connections between um, making statements about a thing, uh, teaching about a thing, describing a thing, but also settling and ruling that thing, Said is drawing a lot on the work of one of my favorite French philosophers, Michel Foucault. The particular piece of Michel Foucault's work that Said is drawing on is the idea of discourse, um, which is really, really key to, to how Said is thinking about how power and knowledge work together. So Said essentially is thinking about Orientalism as a discourse and a discourse that you have to wrap your head around to understand how European culture was both managing and producing the idea of the Orient during this historical period, sort of up until the contemporary moment. So discourse, we got to wrap our heads around what discourse is because Orientalism is a discourse. So yeah, what do we mean by discourse, Hannah? What is a discourse? A discourse gets used. You probably, if you're extremely online as I am, you'll see it used on Twitter a lot where people are like, I'm having a lot of trouble with the discourse today. It's one of those words <laughs> like trope that we use to replace thing. Mm-hmm. It's just like a word, but it does actually have a really particular meaning. And a discourse is a way of understanding something that isn't descriptive of it, but instead is productive of it. So a discourse is knowledge about something that rather than attempting to just describe that thing, quote unquote, objectively, instead produces both knowledge and power around that thing. So the hmm. idea of discourse points us towards the idea that the generation of knowledge about something is one historically contingent. So is sort of how we have produced knowledge about things is rooted in the historical and political moment in which that knowledge was produced, mm-hmm. but also that the production of knowledge is always entangled with political goals, entangled with power mm-hmm. and always has a purpose. So Hmm. even the whole idea of like scientific knowledge as objective knowledge is Mm. thrown straight into the trash can if we start to historicize science at all. So for example, Mm -hmm. historians of science know that in the 18th century, Enlightenment philosophers invented the idea of racial categories and alongside that invented all of these sort of pseudoscientific ways of measuring race like phrenology Mm. and racial IQ Mm -hmm. and that was not a 
attempt to objectively describe the world that was a way of producing knowledge that alongside that knowledge would also produce power particularly produce and justify imperial power right if you want to say oh it makes perfect sense that a handful of small predominantly white nations should build empires and create dominance over the globe you produce new ideas about the way the world works that justify that power right at the same time also if you are sort of like our white male literary theorists in the last episode we're doing if you build your categories of let's say race by looking around and observing the way that things are and you are doing that from a position of power where you understand yourself to be civilized and everyone else to be uncivilized then you're going to reproduce those same categories of power and categories of knowledge yeah yeah exactly so even if we can't attribute a sort of like malevolent intentionality to particular historical thinkers, we can understand where they were coming from and what they were working towards and what systems of power they were working in the interests of. And Mm -hmm. that's part of the sort of, you know, contextualizing the way that discourses work. And so Orientalism is a very particular discourse that was foundational to a lot of Western thinking that was about Mm -hmm. this sort of imaginary invention of a thing called the Orient that was going to function as a sort of other to the West. And so all of these texts and all of this art, but also all of these like governmental organizations come into existence that are all invested in creating this imaginary construct that is the east or the orient that is everything the west is not right so if the west is about freedom the east is about unfreedom if the west is about the pursuit of new knowledge then the east is about tradition so we've got this really sort of either or relationship that is about sort of inventing a discourse around something that simultaneously seeks to produce understanding of it while also producing power over it. Right. So Orientalism is a great example of how otherness is produced as a means of defining the self. One of the defining principles of the so-called Orient is that it is understood to have once been a great civilization, but that it is no more. So Mm -hmm. where the West, the Imperial West, is currently a great civilization, the Orient was once, but no more. So when this greatness was, is extremely vague and has no actual fixed date, because the so-called fall of the greatness is entirely made up. Mm -hmm. That's why so many representations of the Orient, quote unquote, like say Disney's Aladdin, are set Mm. in a sort of indeterminate past that has no attachment to particular historical events or times because the Orient is associated with just this sort of indeterminate pre-fall past. Yeah, exactly. And that is what 
allows Westerners to fantasize about the Orient, to imagine it as this marvelous and beautiful and enchanting and exotic place without admitting that maybe the West is not the peak of civilization. That majesty needs to be in the past in order to justify Western imperial dominance over the Orient. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a similar kind of thinking at work in, say, the fetishization of indigenous people in some settler Mm -hmm. colonial texts that are always insisting that indigenous culture is a thing of the past, right? The sort of dying race myth, which is like, I want to admire and be fascinated by this idea of indigenous culture while also insisting that Western culture is the peak of civilization. So that culture has to be like in the past, dead, non, non-retrievable. Mm-hmm. Because if it, if it could be part of the present, then it would like challenge the supremacy of the West. Exactly. Yes. So the last thing that I want to say about um, Orientalism as a theory um, is uh, it, it comes from this quote from Said, where he says about the invention of the Orient, quote, We must imagine the Orientalist, that's the person who is describing the Orient and the Oriental. We must imagine the Orientalist at work in the role of a clerk, putting together a very wide assortment of files in a large cabinet marked the Semites, end quote. And the reason why I find this so useful is because it really shows us that the process of inventing the Orient is an actual process. It is akin to somebody who is sitting down at their desk, filing a bunch of tropes, if you will, in one box, and then taking a big black marker and writing Semites on it, or Mm -hmm. the Orient. I just find it a very charming visual. It's a really effective visual. And it's also a reminder that the process of generating all of this knowledge is a sort of process of like, repetition that like over and over these tropes are used until we're so familiar with them and by we I mean here western readers are so familiar with them and so they've become so sort of banal and everyday to us that we just sort of receive the information they're communicating to us without pausing to think like well who wrote this down first and why Mm -hmm. yeah like hmm that's That's weird. The other thing that's worth noting about that very excellent and very uh, illustrative quote is the use of the term Semite, because you Mm -hmm. may have noticed that we were talking earlier about Orientalism and anti-Semitic language as going hand in hand. And that might maybe be surprising to you to be like, oh, why are we grouping together Mm anti-Semitism around the goblins with the kind of Orientalism around Quirrell's turban? And the reason is that the sort of historical imagination of the Orient is connected into the idea of, quote unquote, Semites as a racial category. So, Mm -hmm. you know how I just referenced the 18th century invention of racial categories as a way of like dividing up and explaining and understanding the world? One of those racial categories was Semites or Semitic people. So it's an invented racial category from the 18th century that was used to group together primarily sort of like people from the Middle East. 
is kind of the the rough the rough grouping that's being invented there. And again, you know, we've got to remember that simultaneously these historical categories are invented, but that they nonetheless have real material impact created by the power structures that emerged around them. So while there's no such thing as the Semites, just -hmm. like there's no such thing as the Orient, anti-Semitism and Orientalism are very real things. Yes. Yes, exactly. Why do I have these mental associations about goblins or about people with hooked noses or about people wearing turbans? Where did those come from? Why were they invented? How are they operating? What is their purpose? What is their mission? What do they want? The questions we keep needing to ask. Never stop, never stopping. Well, now that we've got a good grasp on the massive concept of Orientalism, it's time for Owls, where we use our theories to unpack something new about Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So. <laughs> Ooh. <sighs> so we've gestured already towards a lot of the really key tropes that are signaling to us how Orientalism is at work in this text. So, and maybe we have a sense now of how tropes tie into discourse, right? That like a trope Mm -hmm. is a sort of shorthand for a discourse that points us towards some assumptions we might be able to make based on how something's being described. So like forest in Albania, uh, turban, Mm. Uh, the ability to talk to snakes. These are all things that sort of point towards the East, the Orient, the other, mm-hmm. um, the opposing force that is the opposite of everything that Hogwarts with its deep Britishness stands for. Okay, so something occurred to me while we were preparing for this episode where I was thinking about the way in which Voldemort's rise and fall are framed in the Harry Potter text. And I'm I'm thinking of them as being similar to the imagined rise and fall of the Orient. It's definitely not a perfect comparison, and it really is something that I'm just thinking about more or less off the top of my head. But the way that we as readers only learn of his of Voldemort's rise to power and his inability or his unwillingness to rule effectively and then his eventual fall into something like legend it really reminds me of the ways that the so-called orient has been constructed as this once great and powerful empire that uh is now all but forgotten except for you know the beautiful museum exhibits that you might see in the west mm-hmm I don't know, mm-hmm. just an idea. Yeah, especially in this book. You know, I think as we move forward through the later texts and start to get more of a specific sense of the chronology of how things happened, some of that representation of the rise and fall of Voldemort shifts. But mm-hmm. very much in this book, from the perspective of Harry as a child, it does just feel like this sort of mysterious before time mm-hmm. um, that is associated with something before what he can remember, something that is sort of dangerous and other and 
is gone now, but is nonetheless still sort of a threat. Um, And that is associated with sort of alluring things and Mm -hmm. um, things that might present kind of a temptation. And we've got a little bit of a sense of that coming through with the way that we still see sort of the Slytherins as Mm -hmm. tempted by what's offered. And of course, Quirrell himself as Mm -hmm. like tempted by what's offered. Um, Even the way that Ollivander describes Voldemort, right? When he tells Harry that their wands share a core and he says, you know, I might be getting this from the movie and not directly from the book. I can't remember. But he's like, terrible, yes, but great. You know, and it's sort of like... Yeah, that impression probably comes from the movie. (laughs) But he does still say that in the books, you know, that Voldemort did great things. Terrible, yes, but great. Yeah. Um, And that's, I mean, right there, that is such perfect shorthand for the sort of British imagination of the Orient. It was mm-hmm. it was great, terrible, yes, but great, mm-hmm. right? So so that fascination with it as being mystically other and very appealing to those who want to sort of plumb into magics with mysterious origins, and that that is so key in the way that Voldemort is linked to the Orient in this book is. The way that in a lot of sort of the history of British adventure fiction, Mm -hmm. there is, and I'm thinking of like H. Ryder Haggard, for example, there's this sort of trope of like the good British white man who embodies all of the ideals of British masculinity, Mm -hmm. who sort of represents imperialism and the empire extending into the rest of the world, goes into quote unquote the Orient and is seduced by its power and its Mm. otherness into a kind of fall in a way that is often associated with the sort of undermining of his good British masculinity. Mm -hmm. And so she is a novel that really does this. Um, But like we can also see, I'm trying to think of like other pop culture references and my mind goes immediately to Brendan Fraser's the mummy <laughs> but the way that we see the sort of like group of very manly men who mm-hmm. travel into the mysterious orient i need it to be known even though this is an audio medium that whenever i say the mysterious orient i am putting it in scare quotes because it is <laughs> an invented thing not a real thing um but you know they travel to this place and are attempting to plumb its secrets, which they believe they can do from their position of both Western virile masculinity as well as superior Western scientific knowledge. And then the like great and terrible power surges up and takes them over and usually emasculates them in some way. So like mm. almost all of the characters in The Mummy, except for Brendan Fraser, have important body parts taken away from them right like they lose their tongues they lose their eyes which functions as a sort of metaphorical castration the Hmm. the emasculation of british masculinity by the orient because the orient is part of the sort of us them self other imagining of it also has to do with um male female masculine feminine which i'm all pointing Mm -hmm. to because like that's quirrell right he was like this 
good British wizard who had noble intentions, like wanted to be a good wizard on the side of British wizardry. (laughs) Whatever, whatever. Yeah. And so he ventures into some sort of mysterious, dark Eastern place where he is seduced by the snake-like temptations of this power that represents otherness and darkness and a mysterious past. And that thing overcomes him. And in the process of overcoming him, um, it not only sort of marks him with otherness via the the signal of the turban that he's wearing, Mm -hmm. but it also undoes his masculinity in the sense that when we encounter Quirrell, he is this pale, frightened, tremulous, stuttering figure who the students have disdain for because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he's so fearful. Right, right. Which is to sort of do my own foreshadowing, I think going to be a theme as we talk about the (laughs) villains through this whole series is that Rowling loves to signal villainy via a failure of how the texts imagine appropriate gendered behavior. Mm -hmm. It happens over and over again, and it's really important foreshadowing as we think about the revelations about Rowling's own transphobia is thinking like, how are villains signaled to us by quote unquote aberrant gendered behaviors? Yeah. Just to backtrack a little bit, you know, what I find really remarkable about the way that you're describing what happens to these good British men who venture into the Orient is that um, I find it remarkable that they are depicted as being punished, not for the audacity to, just go exploring wherever they please and dig up important cultural relics that they have no actual sense of reverence for. They just are looking for treasure. So they're not being punished for that. It's not a reflection of how inappropriate that attitude, that sort of sense of ownership that British imperialism gives to Westerners. Instead, they're being punished for seeking out the secrets, you know? Mm, Yeah, yeah. The punishment feeds into the myth as opposed to bringing attention to how super fucked up the myth itself is. Yeah, because if you were going to say that there was a problem with um, sort of Western culture stealing from the rest of the world and putting... (laughs) (laughs) their historical monuments and sacred objects into museums. I mean, fucking European museums have whole cities from the Middle East that they have just dug up and put in Germany. And they're like, "Uh, what do you mean the ongoing inheritance of imperialism? I have no idea what you're talking about. I just have a whole city. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) um, makes me real mad. Yeah. But like, that's not the problem, right? Because that is still sort of in keeping with like the Western capacity to manage and control mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. It's if you start to be too tempted by it, too interested mm-hmm. in it, um, you know, too drawn into it, uh, that, that is where the danger comes. And that right. really interestingly, exactly that dynamic plays out in the climax of this book with why mm-hmm. Harry is able to get the philosopher's stone and quarrel 
isn't because Quirrell wants it. Like he yeah. is, he is drawn to it. He wants to use it. He wants to be connected to it. Right. He has the mm-hmm. wrong kind of interest in this like mysterious magical object, but Harry's interest is the correctly ordered British school child's interest, <laughs> which is that he wants it like you want a thing in a museum, right? Not to possess it for yourself. Purely academic. <laughs> Purely academic, right? Yeah. He wants it so that he can give it to the like physical representation of British institutional power, which is Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. He wants to pr- return it to its rightful place. And the rightful place is, you know, in the hands of the sensible white man who knows how to take care of it, not mm-hmm. in the hands of the person who is like too fascinated by the use of it. Right. I'm not trying to suggest that Voldemort is better than Dumbledore, lest anybody twist my words here, <laughs> but rather that, that that whole final scene in which Quirrell and Harry sort of compete to see who can like want this thing in the right way. Mm-hmm. Their different relationships of desire to the Philosopher's Stone really map against sort of the history of British adventure fiction and the right way of desiring things about the Orient. Hmm. Yeah. You can't want it too much. No. You've got to want it in the right way. Yeah. Academically. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, what's really interesting about the conclusion is that the Philosopher's Stone, unlike a whole city... Mm-hmm. is actually not a thing, right? The Philosopher's Stone at the end doesn't go into a museum. It's not like, you know, Dumbledore can have it and he can put it under glass in his office and everybody can observe it. Um, yeah. But rather, in fact, that the Philosopher's Stone is so dangerous that it must be destroyed, that nobody should have it. That, in fact, the desire for it at all or its, its existence in the world is a problem. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, you know, that is a signal that Dumbledore's relationship to this thing is the better one, is that ultimately he understands that it is too dangerous and wants to get rid of it entirely. You know, this is a thing that I think maybe will come up continually as we work through this series, but I've been thinking a lot about the kinds of education that Harry receives throughout Mm -hmm. this series, because this is a series about education. And Mm -hmm. education functions in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that Harry is being educated is around the idea of what should and should not be desired. Mm. And education in desire, in the correct orientation towards desire, is a major part of how, you know, power and knowledge operate when we are Mm -hmm. thinking about the sort of disciplining of the Western subject, that the properly disciplined Western subject learns what they're allowed to want and what they're not allowed to want. Mm -hmm. So while that's an arc we can probably see across the entire series of the books, it particularly plays out via Quirrell's relationship to desire in this text and the way that his desire is this kind of orientalist desire for the secrets and the power and the knowledge that are offered to him by the Orient. Mm -hmm. Which ties us, you know, right back into that whole question of how orientalism is operating in this text to signal to us the good, correct things 
that we should align ourselves with and strive towards and the bad, scary, dangerous other things that we should be wary of and stay away from, whether those things are a man in a turban or a mean teacher with a hooked nose or Mm. a clever looking goblin. Those are all things that this text is warning us about. Thank goodness for the old white male patriarch for stepping in and making sure that we children don't play with things that are too powerful and dangerous for us. (laughs) We're really just scratching the surface here, and there's so much to talk about in this book and also uh, in the rest of the series that connects with these ideas of desire and Western imperialism and Orientalism. We're definitely going to keep coming back to this repeatedly over the course of this season. So hang on to your hats. And if you have any ideas, please, by all means, tweet them at us or put a picture on Instagram and share it with us. (laughs) Just slide into our Instagram DMs. Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, witches, for joining us for episode two of the new and improved Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our brand new but already beloved producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming with us on this new journey. If you're into the reboot, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. Every week, we'll read five-star reviews here, so you've got to review us if you want to hear me mispronounce your name. Mm-hmm. But we don't have any new five-star reviews, so there's nothing to go here right now. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. Yeah. I know, right? Right? It's almost like not making episodes for two years will really do that to you. <laughs> also, don't forget, we've started a Patreon where you can help keep this project going and gain access to that solid gold bonus content that's mostly Marcel saying, Ugh, what was I trying to say? Fuck! Visit, <laughs> visit patreon.com slash please for this sound over and over again. Oh, <clears throat> fuck! Just those two back and forth forever. <laughs> On our next episode, we'll be continuing on our journey through Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone with a whole different focus. But until then, later witches!